Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. I want you to open up your Bible to the book of Hosea, chapter 13, and I want to give you guys a round of applause. Why don't you give you guys a round of applause for, for the purpose of, yeah, give, have some conviction for you guys. For the purpose of, of being, of, for, for all of you who have stuck through it up until this point, we're, we're about a chapter away from finalizing the book of Hosea, and let me tell you, it has not been the easiest book to examine or to preach from, particularly because it's kind of gray, or in a sense, it's kind of black. Uh, the color is kind of black uh, in the emotional realm. It's very dark and gloomy. It's kind of like today. So this, isn't, this book isn't a, a sunny day in, in April. This is a gloomy, uh, wintry day, and it just, it's hard. But the glory about this is that in all of that kind of trouble, in all of that kind of gloom, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is hope to, to be presented. And I'm glad that if you have been here for this entire, I don't know, six, seven months that we've been examining this, uh, it, it's been God's word that has been keeping you uh, really reacting to it and, and being on, on, on point with it. So this is a great time for us to just kind of do that, that last push. This is kind of like the last marathon run when uh, we're on the last mile here and it's a, a point, mile point two away and we're about to finish the marathon and it's kind of like the hardest mile to get through. So if you've ever run a marathon, you understand what that means. If you've never run a marathon, well, uh, I invite you to do so one day. But it's a, difficult, it's a difficult moment. Chapter 13 is a difficult chapter because it... It is the finalization of God's ultimate judgment over his people. And you got to remember, this is his people. These are his people. These are the people that he has loved and cared for. But as we have examined prior, all of God's accusations towards them have become a reality. And God has kind of had enough. And because of the accusations, now God brings judgment. So we read it earlier today, and I'm going to take this in portions, but what, what I really want to examine today is this concept of pride, this concept of, of being full of yourself. I don't know if you've met people that are full of themselves or if you at one point in time in your life were full of yourself and prideful. You understand what this means and what this looks like and what it tastes like. None of us like to be around people that are prideful because it stinks. Not that they themselves stink, but that, the, that, that stench of pride when someone is, is prideful in their heart and in their attitude and in their character towards others, they demean others and they put others down. They are the ultimate prize. And it's just not a good thing. So I want to examine this prideful spirit, and I want to let you guys know about the dangers of pride. You may think that you are not prideful. You may think that you don't suffer with pride, but maybe that in itself is prideful. 
to say, Jonathan, this isn't my, don't worry, I could fall asleep now because this really ain't my thing. I'm not prideful. I may, I may fail at other things in my life, but pride, I got that under control. Well, that may be a good sign that you don't. So listen up. I want to re- recap the first three verses so you can understand what I'm, what I'm speaking about. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. You get that? Verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, or it's talking about uh, the leadership of Israel in this case, there was trembling. So you could imagine the authority and the power of, of, of the leadership. When they would speak, people would tremble. He was exalted in Israel. What does that mean? God, uh, the, the people in Israel, all the people that were uh, the subjects of the kings and the rulers were exalting them in awe. So not only are they trembling in fear, but they are exalting them and glorifying them. But it incurred, but he incurred guilt. I want you to pay attention to that. He incurred guilt. We're talking about Ephraim, the leadership, through Baal and died. He incurred guilt through Baal. That means that through idol worship, they died as a nation, not physically, but as a nation. Their political nation has dissolved. Dissolved. They have gone away, and they have no more political identity or national identity. And verse 2 says, And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kill, kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. So this pride, this arrogant spirit examines three aspects of their life. It examines the past when they incurred guilt in verse 1. It examines the present in verse 2, and now, as they continue in their sin, and then in verse 3, it examines the aspect of the future, because they have this, therefore, they shall be like. So the guilt and prideful, arrogant spirit has a trajectory through their entire life, past, present, and will carry on into the future. That is one of the biggest dangers And one of the biggest things we have to identify in a prideful spirit that it's very hard to kill and it will follow you all through your life. But these people and these leaders, God had enough and it is because of their pride that we begin to read these difficult passages that that we read in in verses 4 through through 8. So, really quick, go to Deuteronomy. I say quickly because I don't, I don't want to spend too much time in Deuteronomy, but I just want to remind you of something. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want you to always remember this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. It says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
There is a subtle warning at the beginning of Israel's existence in Deuteronomy, second generation, of people that were supposed to not be prideful. This is the the main point. God says, don't be prideful, because when you begin to accumulate all of these things, and when you are full, and when you have prosperity, gold and silver, when all of these things I give you, because God is the one that does the giving, when all of these are at your hand, be careful because your heart can be lifted or exalted. Prosperity generally gives people a prideful spirit. I'm not speaking in, in, in that it's the case in every single case, but in general, it's something that typically happens. Now, you may know some very wealthy people that are very humble, but in general, the very wealthy, those that are prosperous, especially those that grow up with nothing, become a type of, have a, a prideful spirit in them saying that they don't need others anymore. And that is what happens in Israel. So at the beginning of the, these first three verses, God is just subtly reminding them that, A, my anger and justice isn't arbitrary. This isn't just, I woke up angry today. This isn't God just being upset for no reason. This has been generations upon generations of prideful spirits that have done one thing that God has asked them not to do. Worship other gods. When they spoke, there was trembling. This reminds me of passages in Psalms that speak of God's voice as an echo that makes uh, the nations tremble. This is what the prophets spoke about, that God's voice was the one that made the nations tremble. But in this case, it's Ephraim, the leaders of Israel, that caused fear among the people. What does that do? That gives that, that the leadership of Israel, this exalted spirit, to govern authoritatively and to realize that they have power, money, and power. What a great combination. If you're prosperous and you have power or your influence is powerful, then trouble will rise. They, it, it rose in the fact that they were exalted. Here's the important catch in verse 1. They were exalted from others. The very people that were to exalt God were the people that exalted their kings. Only God was to be exalted, and only God is to do the exalting. God exalted Joshua. God exalted Solomon. It is God that does the exalting. No one else should be exalted over God. So the prideful spirit and arrogant nature of a person tends to seek that approval from others. It tends to feel, want to feel the trembling nature in their subjects. And Israel was being fed by this authority. This prosperity was feeding their ego. What's the consequence of this? In verse 2, uh, there's this consequence of continuity. So not only are they guilty of this prideful spirit, but in their prideful spirit, they continue to be prideful. This incurred guilt could have awoken 
their sensibilities to, 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 to look to God, to remind themselves that God was the one that had put them and placed them in prosperity, but they did not. And because they did not, they incurred guilt. Their past guilt is bringing forth into the present. It's kind of like saying today, don't live in the past. You know, that, that famous motivational speeches that tell you, you know, leave your past. Forget your past. Don't, don't worry about your past. However, in Israel's case, it's not that they were worried about their past. It's that their past kept feeding their ego. Their past was the, the, the reminder of their authority and their prosperity, and they thought that they could do it. And it kept feeding their ego that led them into the present. The present aspect that, that, that says in verse 2, it's very clear. And now, what does the, the first line say? And now they sin more and more. So this guilt that, brought, that came from the back, from, from the past, has come into the present. And it has brought death. At the end of verse 1, we see that they died through the worship of Baal because their pridefulness built for themselves idols. And they built for themselves these statues of their own doing. In so doing, they died. Once again, that's a consequence of a prideful spirit. I can do it. I do it. I make it. I design it. I worship it because it is what I desire. But God had told them, you don't need to die. What I want to do with, with, with this time together is keep reminding us as readers of what God had done previously. Because we look at, after reading the entire chapter, you may have heard some very questionable, difficult uh, sayings in here. And I want to remind you what this means and why this is here. If we go back to Deuteronomy, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 19, there's a question God puts to his people. And this is a question I would love to poise to you today. As a matter of fact, let, let us, let's learn. Let's learn what it says. Let's, let's go there, just so that you don't doubt Let's go there. Chapter 30. I'm going to read from verses 15 and on. And it says, See, I have set before you today life and, and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, there's that heart issue again. If your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. There's that warning. If you worship idols, what's going to happen? You will perish. You will surely die. I declare, in verse 18, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and curse. Therefore, 
choose life that you and your offspring may live. What is God asking Israel to do? God is warning Israel about pride. God is warning Israel about a heart that is determined to be prideful. All of us know that the human nature and our vulnerability is always in our prideful spirit. And once again, you may say, I don't struggle with pride, but you know yourself more than anyone here or your wife knows you more than anyone here or your husband knows you more than anyone here and they may know where your Achilles heel lay. And it may be that in our prideful, arrogant nature, we have somehow shifted our attention away from God to worship idols. Now this idolatry that we see in Hosea is physical calf worship and gold and silver and it's it's tangible but once again we have to examine our hearts and examine our idolatry i love what the 16th century reformer calvin says that our hearts are factories of idols we fabricate in our hearts idolatry at every aspect it's the boyfriend, it's the girlfriend, it's the wife, it's the husband, it's a sport, it's, it, it's something, it's money, but it's there. And God says to you, as He said to Israel, when you are prosperous, when you have a good career, when you have money in the bank, when you're doing well, when you have three cars, when you have a nice house, when you have a family that, that with, with wonderful kids, when your kids go to Ivy League schools, when you are good and settled, beware that your heart doesn't go astray and become prideful. So today, the imperative is choose life. You walk out these doors, my friends, and you are bombarded with death. You are bombarded with a culture of death. You are bombarded with a culture that is anti-God. I forgot where I read that, uh, but there's a, I don't even know if it was a, st a statistic that I read, but it, it shows that 51% of people in the U.S. have converted over to atheism. That's more than Catholicism and Christianity put together. People are just turning away from God every day more and more. A nation that was founded upon God is turning away from God. So when you exit these doors, when you live your life Monday through Friday or through Saturday, you are bombarded with a culture that is seeking your heart. It's a culture of death because you know that this wide open road that is very comfortable and that is very appealing and that is very amusing and it just feels so good leads only to death and that's why as you come in to service today and you begin to worship and experience worship and you may feel like oh my god it's so serious well it's a serious thing because your life is at hand we've somehow confused Modern church to be this joyful kind of like, hey, everybody hanging out and high-fiving each other. And although that's part of it, it isn't the end goal because we don't come here just so that we could look at our beautiful mugs. 
We don't come here to just see what we're wearing. We don't come here to just drink the coffee. We don't come here to say high five and, and, and then where are we going to hang out afterwards. We don't come here for that. We come here for God. And God is worthy to be praised. And God is holy. And so therefore, the imperative lays here, choose life. Death, life. Friends, Choose life. There's only two ways, and God said it in the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ repeats it in Matthew in the New Testament. This is what you need to choose. Apparently, obviously, Hosea and the people that were around him and his contemporaries, they chose death. They chose death. They chose idolatry. And, in verse 2, they kept persisting in it. They didn't learn from their past. They brought it to their present, and they lived in it, and it made it worse. Idolatry with images that they fabricated with their own hands. It's always a mystery to me why people bow down to idols, thinking that they're going to save them, forgetting that they were made. But that was Israel. Pride did not allow them to repent. I, I think, or I know that most people that have a difficult time with church have realized that they have it all figured out within themselves. It's a, it's a common occurrence with people that, that just say, you know, why am I going to waste my Sunday morning at church? What's... What do I need to go to church for? Like, you know, hear some music. Or they want to. They're going to ask for money all the time, and 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 then just sit down, and listen to some guy talk about a book that was written about six thousand years ago. Like, what's the deal? What's the sense in that? I could be doing more with my time. I could be doing a lot more with my time. And and to a certain extent, the church is is, is guilty of trying to ease that that burden on your lives. And that's why churches nowadays kind of like, you know what, let's do, let, let, let's do five minutes of just singing and let's do like a 15-minute motivational talk and, and hype people up. And I've heard uh, the, the latest investigation that I did was a church was in and out within 45 minutes. They had a 45-minute service. How many of you guys could say, hey, man, that sounds good, man. It's like, boom, in and out. I'm done in 45 minutes? Woo, sign me up for that. Where is that church? Well, the good thing is that they're not here in Chicago. But, because then you'll all be asking for it after the service. It's like, it's convenience-oriented because our time has become our God. Our time has become the idol. Our time is the ultimate luxury in our life. Why waste our time in a church that's talking about a book that is older than Goodness, it's old. Why waste our time there? Idols. Idol worship. Because the prideful spirit has crept in and has drifted our attention to what we can do and what we've accomplished and has completely forgot about God. That's the problem with idolatry and that's why God said it from the start. Do not be exalted because when this happens, you're going to do stupid things. And one of the stupid things you're going to do is worship idols. And when you do that, you will die because the idols have become the substitute for my presence. 
you choose to look and touch and feel and see rather than what you know. People did it. People did it 4,000 years ago. People still do it today. The irony in this is that they worshiped calves. And, and I want you to read this very carefully. In verse, in verse 2, it says, at the middle of verse 2, and the ESV says it like this, it is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. If we take a real literal translation from the Hebrew, it says this, they speak to them, meaning the people speak to the idols, and they kiss calves. So that part is, is a little bit more literal in the ESV. But this is the absurdity of this moment. People are speaking to their created things, to their objects of made by craftsmen. They have created them, they have made them beautiful, and they are speaking to them. Can you imagine what they are telling them? They are praying to them. They are asking them for help. They are asking them for deliverance. They are asking them for prosperity. And they kiss calves. So their golden calf, this symbol that was used, this calf that was used to be used to sacrifice on an altar to a mighty God, to the only true God that Israel ever really knew, that calf that they were supposed to use for their sacrifice has now become the object of their sacrifice. And what are they sacrificing? In verse 2, those who offer human sacrifice. So not only are they speaking to these calves, not only are they kissing these calves, they are sacrificing humans to these calves. So they aren't sacrificing other things. Apparently, to them, the, the right sacrifice to a calf is a human body. And it means living body. A living sacrifice. Do you see the absurdity in this? This is absurd that the object, that the, the, not, the, the tangible sacrifice they were to use to worship to God has now become the object of their sacrifice, and they're sacrificing themselves their sons, usually their kids, to the calf. It's absurd, and it's just plain stupid. And God told them, don't do it. That's why verse 3 sums up the rest of the chapter. Verse 3, the future. So we have the, the, the guilt in the past in verse 1, the, the absurdity and the stupidity in verse 2, in the present and the future consequence, which would be they will be like the morning mist, like the dew that goes early away, like the shaft that swirls from the threshing floor, and like smoke from a window. They are going to go up in smoke. They're going to disappear. It's talking about the nation. It's talking about the people now. Their, nation, their national identity is gone by this point as we've studied the historical uh, occurrences up until this point. But they will be, as a people, gone like smoke. If you remember what verse 6, I mean chapter 6, verse 4, I'm going to read it to you real, uh, 
quickly in, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. That's a reminder of their false and phony repentance that they were saying, sorry, God, but they really didn't mean it. And that's why God said, it's like the morning mist. It's like one day it's there and the other day it's gone. It's like when you come to church on Sunday and you say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, my God, the, the, the songs convicted me. And, oh, I felt like crying and I felt so bad. And, okay, okay, God, I'm going to be good. And, and then the preaching, it was, it was, uh, Henry was preaching and it was so good. And, and, it, and I felt convicted in my spirit when Henry was speaking. And, and it was just amazing. And, oh, my God, God, from now on, uh, on Monday morning, I'm, I'm going to be praying. I'll be reading my word. I'm going to be looking for you, God. And, bam, Monday morning happens. And it's like, what? God, who? What happened? Uh, it's like the morning mist. It was false and phony. It was an emotional occurrence. You felt good on Sunday, but then that didn't bleed into your Monday morning and the rest of the week. And that's why God uses this to compare their false and phony repentance. That's how they are going to be. They're going to be up in smoke pretty soon. It's harsh. It's only going to get harsher as we trek along in these last couple of minutes. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 6 is another important little area that we have to examine. And since they tended to forget, since they were kind of just forgetful in all aspects about God, God is going to bring a stern reminder of who He is. Read this in, in verse 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their hearts were lifted up. Therefore, they forgot. This section is a stern reminder of who God is and who He was with them. He cared for them. He, he fed them. He protected them. That's why He reminds them of Egypt. This is me. This is the God that was with you. I brought you out of Egypt. It reminds them that what they are doing in the present is a direct attack on the outcome of their salvation. What happened when they were rescued from Egypt? God brought them to Sinai. And at Sinai, they got to hear from God. And at Sinai, we get these wonderful uh, images. And if you've seen these movies, you get these wonderful images of Moses coming down from the mountain with his two tablets, right? It's the Ten Commandments. And, and that's most of us can, can say one or two commandments, but, but, but we have the notion that there's ten of them. And, and he comes down with these two commandments and he presents them before his people. And the, and the first two commandments are specifically about what Israel is doing now. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not make for yourselves an idol. God reminded them of Egypt so they could remember what happened right after Egypt. And so they could remember that it was him that was with them. And he says it clearly. I love the way the ESV says it. You know no other God before me. It, it, it was a stern reminder to them that their gods were all fake. Every God they made was fake. So they never knew any other God in reality. There was no other God for them to know because they were all fake. What were they going to know? A statue? 
What they thought they knew was no God. And God was reminding them that I was the only one. God was the only one that was the real God in all of this. And not only that, God was the only true Savior. He's the one that rescued them from their captivity. It was God that they were the only ones to know and that they had known. They tasted these other fabricated images thinking they were God, but it was never the case. They never knew another God. Everything was fake. Verse 5, God, once again, it was I. Read that at the very beginning. It was I who knew you in the wilderness. There it is, God speaking and taking care of them during a difficult moment, not only in the wilderness, but in the land of drought. And then in verse 6, he says, I gave you the, gra- the, the, the grass that they grazed from. They became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. It was God who protected them in the wilderness, as opposed to these false phony gods. It was God who gave them their food, and it was them who had their hearts lifted or exalted. God gave, God protected, God watched, God covered, they became prideful. Does that make sense? How does that make sense with when God is doing everything positive? People tend to turn away. And, and it's beautiful. This, this is, I mean, it's a hard passage, but it's beautiful because in all of this, God is saying, I, 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 I protected you. I, I watched you. I kept you. I was with you. I knew you in the wilderness. I took you out of Egypt. I was with you in the land of drought. Me, 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 me. I was doing all this. At never one point do we read that Israel at one point repented. It didn't matter how good or how bad they were. God kept watching over them. That's the beauty of our God. It doesn't matter how bad you are. God continues to watch over you. It's impressive. God provided. They became satisfied in verse 6. God provided. They became prideful. God provided and they became forgetful. It's a pretty good combination. God did everything and then they realized, oh wait, I did this all by myself. We became a powerful nation all by ourselves. I've heard this. I've been in the church game for a long time now. And I've heard prayers like, God, if you get me this job, I'm going to serve you the rest of my life. God, if you, could, if you only can fix my marriage, God, I'll be yours for the rest of my life. God, if you could only get my son out of prison, I will serve you the rest of my life. Miraculously, God does. God provides. God opens up. God leads the way. God frees the son. God fixes the marriage. God does everything in spite of us. And then within a year, they're gone like yesterday. Gone. They forgot. They forgot that it was God that did all the provision. And they went off living on their own. And I've been in this church game long enough to know a lot of people. We can attest to the testament of this that it's true. 
People just leave church because they feel like they got it all figured out. That's why, my friends, we looked at Deuteronomy 4 and 8 and 30, and it was dealing with one crucial issue that God is dealing with in Hosea, the heart. We need God. And when we realize that we need God, we'll live lowly and humble. When we realize that we need God, we won't exalt ourselves. What are we going to exalt ourselves in? What is there to prove from ourselves? Oh, look at me. I have a wonderful career. Oh, look at me. Look at all my money in my bank account. Oh, look at the cars that I drive and the houses that I own. What is there to be prideful about? One day in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, this storm of an economic crash swiped the nation and it took people's 401ks and it took people's savings accounts and it took people's stock value and it went crashing to the floor and what did people how did people respond they took their lives they couldn't handle the pressure because all of their trust and devotion was what they worked their entire lives to accomplish friends when we have god as our one true trust, there is no economic pressure. There is no worry of downfall because God is true to the very last minute and nothing in this earth will affect his determination. So why be prideful and boastful in something that can fail when we have a God that is unwavering, that is unrelenting, and that is all-powerful? That's what Israel forgot. And that's why these metaphors are so devastating. I'm preparing you at this moment for the metaphors that come in verses 7 through 8. We're not going to have a chance to read them today or, or study them today, but I'm preparing you for them. Because God gracefully, sovereignly, was with his people. And they just didn't want to do anything. They didn't want anything to do with God. Their pride led them astray. They're gone. And they still continue to sin. They chose the way of death and they still desire more of it. And so when we read verses 7 through 8 in a couple of weeks, we're going to be realizing that those decisions bring divine judgment. And God has the right to do so. So I would ask you to prepare your hearts by reading the entire chapter, especially verses 7 through 8, and, and, and see how you feel after you read it. Even the remaining verses in 15 and 16. See what goes on in your head and in your brain when you read this, but, but realize this. God warned God gave an, an alternative, but sinful, prideful man always chose the worst. I pray for you and for myself that we aren't caught up in a prideful spirit because it only leads to devastation. The only thing pride brings is destruction. And that is what you have to realize this morning. You are not created to be 
your own destruction. You are created for the glory of God. And God is the one in charge of doing all the building in your life. I ask you, choose life. Choose life. Let God build you. Realize that you and I are poor as poor can be. Spiritually, emotionally, we are impoverished outside of God. You and I need God. And only God can heal and mend the broken soul. So let's stand up this morning. I'm going to finish reading the same verse. I want you to hear it. I want you to close your eyes and get your hearts ready for prayer. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Let's pray. Lord, let this be a stern reminder of who you are. This is you. If we look at our lives and we look at our past and we realize where we are at at this very moment, it's not us. Where would we be without you? What would we be doing without you? Where would our marriage be without you? Where would our lives be without you? Father, let us always remember that it was you, that it is you, and that it will always be you. Though we try and try and try and try to figure things out on ourselves and do things for ourselves, it always leads to failure, even though the world will call it a success but you will call it a national death, for we have disassociated ourselves with our Father. I pray that you bring conviction this morning to all of our souls and hearts so that we can examine our, the profoundness of who we are and who you are. Heal us, watch us, build us, break us. But over everything, Father, Keep shaping us to be the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name. And we all say, amen. So, let's give God a round of applause. Before we dismiss, before we dismiss, uh, just a, 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 a brief reminder, next week is Easter Sunday, right? Resurrection Sunday. Make some noise for that. Uh, we're going to have a, we're going to be having a special service, uh, and it's our Easter service, and I encourage you. Honestly, this is the easiest time, this and Christmas are the easiest times to let your friends know about God and about coming to church. So I encourage you to be bold in your witness and in your testimony to invite a family member or invite a, 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 another friend from work and just say, hey man, just come check out church and learn about God on Easter Sunday. I mean, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You know, obviously you're going to try to tempt them by taking them out for breakfast afterwards or whatever it is, but get them here because people need to know about Jesus Christ. 
and his resurrection, okay? So I encourage you to do it, and, and I put that holy kind of conviction on your soul that if you're not evangelizing next week, something's wrong with you. No, I'm playing. Keep, keep evangelizing, keep praying, and, and get these people to come to church so that they can hear about Jesus Christ.